You're listening to the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has been working to make cars safer. Find out more at autosafety.org. Welcome to the hole in the back of the computer. Ah, got it, finally. Wonderful. And now begin a new episode of audio experience. Wait, (laughs) Center for Auto Safety Experience. We need a better title. Anyway, hey, folks, thanks for joining us again. Um, Hey, before the show even starts, click like, click subscribe, write a review on iTunes podcast, do something like that. Now the show. So let's start off. There's a uh, report uh, that comes out once a year, and Jalopnik picked it up this week uh, or past week from this group called Anderson Economic Group, which as far as I can tell is just funded by Toyota, in my opinion. We're basically they come out once a year and say that EVs are too expensive. You can't charge them. It's way too expensive. Gasoline's cheaper. Their report has a bunch of assumptions in it. Number one being that the average American makes seventy thousand dollars a year, and that when you go to charge your EV at some rest stop somewhere, the time it takes you to charge, you're losing wages. Which is, I mean, come on, this is this is just silliness here. Um, but they make a big assumption that you're charging 40% of your time away from your home, whereas I, I don't think that's how people are using EVs. Uh, and they also <laughs> had a big thing in there about deadhead miles, which is what long-haul truckers deal with when you know they take a load to one destination, they come back the other way, they don't have a load. Um, and so this just sounds a lot like a load. The only takeaway I can take from this that I can agree with is that they basically point out that the current public charging infrastructure in the U.S. is not that good. Outside of the East Coast, West Coast, it's uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, try and travel across the country. But you know, I can travel from New York to D.C. if I had an EV, and I, I wouldn't be concerned about it. Or New York to Maine, even I'd be fine. So, don't believe the hype, people. You know, there's a um. <laughs> I don't know if there's any connection between Toyota and those guys, but you know, we've seen recently that Toyota, the, the Toyota had a change at the top and it appears that, you know, they wanted to make a, as a company, make a bigger push towards EVs. Um, so, you know, it's interesting. We're still kind of sitting on the sidelines here, wondering what EVs are going to mean for vehicle weight and crashes and a lot of other issues. And at the moment, um, you know, we're, we're not completely sold on the idea that EVs are going to, to be the answer for, um, for everything in the transportation ecosystem. Um, but as that article, uh, points out there's a lot of there's still a lot of things up in the air a lot of issues to consider when you're looking at uh gasoline versus battery okay <laughs> <laughs> a pregnant pause. Well, you know, I was looking at fred and i was like i know he's got something to say but he was just stepping back <laughs> well you know a cynic would say that uh and of course i'm not a cynic and i know you gentlemen are not either but a cynic might say that this whole this whole idea of EVs is fluff created to avoid the 
the really meaningful discussions about changes in traffic patterns and highway construction that are necessary to really reduce the footprint of pollutants that are entering the country. We're, we're never going to get there by putting everybody in an EV. The only way we're going to get there is to reinforce and uh, rebuild public transportation systems in a way that would allow me, living out here in the sticks, to you know go pick up the bus to go into the big city and get my pig knuckles or you know whatever it is I want to do. That's just absent now. And, you know, we've seen this over and over, actually, where a competing company will promise that in the future, everything will be better with this new technology they're developing, simply to delay sales of their competitors' not-so-good product. Um, GE did it with jet engines, uh, uh, you know, several years ago, and even though that they never did produce the engine they were touting, it was successful in depressing the sales of the competing jet engine. I think that we're going through a period of a similar phenomenon. The real decisions have to be made, the expensive decisions have to be made about rebuilding the infrastructure and making it accessible to everybody to really make a contribution toward reducing the carbon footprint. And by talking up the EVs, it's a great way for the government and people in a position to make these decisions to avoid making the decisions to say that in the future everything will be better so we don't need to do anything now um, we've seen it with safety we've seen it with voluntary standards that don't work it's an it's an old ploy and i don't know a cynic might say that this is just another example of bait and switch of course i'm not a cynic and i you know i know you gentlemen aren't but i just thought i'd throw it out there I think that's the theme of today's episode. In the future, things are going to get better. Don't pay attention to now. Uh, Don't look up. Don't look up. <laughs> right. Uh, personally, my take on the EVs, I look at it as a backdoor way to force a massive upgrade to our electrical infrastructure. Um, but I'm not a cynic. I'm I'm a naive optimist. Uh, and speaking and then, of... Um, oh, sorry. Yeah. Two weeks ago, and I don't think we've we've covered this yet because we had a guest last week. We um, you know, we saw Jennifer Hermendi, the chair of the NTSB, you know, come out and say that we need to be concerned about the really heavy electric vehicles like the Hummer EV and a lot of the pickups that are on the roads, and voice you know some very well founded concerns there. I mean, I I, I would I, I don't think that environmentalists envisioned the Hummer EV as, you know, what's going to come in and, and save the world when they were when when they were um, putting their support behind EVs. Um, and so it was a little disappointing to see the president of the United States in a Hummer EV yesterday or two days ago, whenever that was. And they're kind of missing the plot. You know, I can forgive him for leaving all those classified documents next to the Corvette in his garage, but I don't know about the Hummer EV thing. <laughs> He's also a naive optimist. <laughs> well, his job is herding cats. His job is not to understand things. Um, you know, he's doing the best he can with the tools he's got available, I think. I, I would have liked to see him in the Chevy Bolt. So a, a recap for, for audience listeners. The main problem with the Hummer EV is not that it makes you look like a fool. It's that it weighs over 9,000 pounds. And as Fred has pointed out many times on this show, there's a thing called physics. You know, 9,000 pound vehicle takes a long time to stop, which is plenty of time to crush you in your Toyota Corolla. 
um, there's no coming back from that. No, particularly if you're a pedestrian. <laughs> we did a little research this week and showed that uh, instead of buying the Hummer for the same amount of mass, you can go out and buy a really nice sailboat, save some money, and have a lot more fun. So drive back and forth to the marina in your Toyota Yaris and get a nice sailboat and invite us out for a drink sometime. I have a uh, theory, competing theory, that if you have a Venn diagram of Hummer owners and sailboat owners, the circles don't meet in the middle. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm not sure if the demographics work out on that one. Well, good point. Good point. They they probably don't. And I'm pretty sure if I put a sail on a Hummer and put it in the river, I don't think I would get it to move. But that could just be me. Uh, so speaking of the Hummer EV, and I think I'm not sure if we've touched on this, but there was a good article arguing for um, right now uh, roads are paid for through gasoline taxes and with EVs obviously don't fuel up it with gasoline. And so one of the things we've talked about is charging vehicles based on the weight they have. So basically an annual tax or something like that. So and I think this works for fuel vehicles, too, because, I mean, a Hummer gasoline you know, vehicle weighs a ridiculous amount as well. So charging vehicles for that, because uh, the heavier vehicle is, the more wear and tear it puts on roads and the infrastructure. Uh, is anyone making any real progress on on this approach? Well, yeah, every commercial truck is taxed on that basis. Really? So, so 18 wheelers, they, they're paying more? They're paying more than smaller trucks. Yeah. So it's a it's a standard technique. It's already developed. People understand how to do it, how to implement it, uh, how to collect the taxes. I'd say let it rip. So it's not done through their their fueling, filling up at the the gas pump. Well, they pay at the gas pump, too, but there's an additional road use tax that the uh, heavy trucks have to pay. So, I, you know, I think an additional road use tax for heavy Hummers would be a fantastic idea. I, I think one of the problems there is that all the policies right now on on EVs and taxes are giving tax breaks to people for buying them in the first place. So that's where all the real movement has been on taxes. And there's been very little movement towards taxing based on weight, although I think that could be a, you know, a great idea, particularly for vehicles that are you know extremely heavy when you start getting past sedans wagons into the large suvs um, maybe we set a you know a set of point five thousand pounds and above i'm just throwing out there six thousand pounds or above where you start getting an incrementally larger tax the heavier your passenger vehicle gets but as michael pointed out for some of our larger uh listeners uh they weigh the vehicle without you in it thank god yes okay big heavy cars need what they need big heavy tires and in uh, an ongoing (laughs) uh, situation with the center for auto safety and goodyear uh justice department probes goodyear's handling of recalled tire the justice department is investigating goodyear tire for its handling of a recalled tire that has been linked to eight deaths and dozens of injuries this is a a good thing yeah, I think, you know, we could probably do a whole episode or write a book on this Goodyear tire saga that's been going on since 
the late 90s is when the crashes started happening maybe the early 2000s that period and it was it was around the same time as the firestone tire uh ford and firestone tire issue was going through congress and we had legislation passed um to put in some better regulations for um NHTSA monitoring defects and better regulations around the recall process, some early warning reporting and that type of stuff came into place. And there was this massive federal response to this tire defect going on with Ford and Firestone. And meanwhile, Goodyear had a similar problem. It didn't, they don't, they they were only, uh, you know, a, there were a lot less of these tires on the roads. So Goodyear, settled these cases uh and didn't report the defect to nitsa and now almost 20 years later we're seeing finally um justice moves slow um we're seeing uh the possibility that that goodyear is going to face criminal charges um the justice department has uh, i believe they started a grand jury basically who is talking with Dave Kurtz, who is the lawyer who's been at the center of this for a long time. He's the one who discovered that um, Goodyear was, you know, knew that these tires weren't weren't meant for the vehicles they were selling them for. And um, he had a client that had um, settled with Goodyear at some point. And then later on, he found out that Goodyear was hiding information from a lot of other uh potential victims who were who had cases so he basically made it, i mean he's a hero here he basically made it his mission to uh ensure that that you know that the story came to light and it has through you know a lot of good reporting and um you know we've done some work to try to get the documents that goodyear the tests and other documents that goodyear was hiding out of out of Arizona court and into the public eye. Um, some of those made it into the public eye in a in a leak from the court um, to a Jalopnik reporter a few years ago. So it's a very interesting story. But the, it, what it really comes down to is Goodyear has used, in my opinion, fairly you know sleazy legal tactics to hide a defect. And um, hopefully, this grand jury is looking into the um legal team that Goodyear has been using over the years on, on on this specific case with the G159 tires because there were a lot of problems there and consumers were put at risk and um NHTSA should have been notified of a defect long before um they had to come in I believe last year and tell Goodyear hey you need to recall these Goodyear said they're not really a defect, but okay, we'll do it. I think last check they had replaced around 12 tires total. So it's not as though the recall is costing them a lot at this point, which was their ultimate goal to push it back many years. So they're arguing that things will be better in the future. That's well, haven't, yeah, haven't we heard this story before? I think there was a movie uh, about the tobacco industry a few years ago that laid this out in detail. And so for your documentary filmmakers out there, if you'd like to get filled in on the details, just drop us a note. We'd be happy to help. Fred will send you his headshot. So are these tires still on the road or consumers at risk still? I mean, apparently at least 12 of them were because those have been replaced. But yes, they're, they're, they are still on vehicles. It's just really hard to track tires um, because, you know, they're not registered in the state. You know, there's really 
it's always been difficult, even in tire recalls, to track down where the tires end up. That that that's interesting. So as a consumer, I buy a you know a brand new car. Like is not registered that hey, it came with whatever brand tires and make model or the car might be, but these were RV tires and they weren't always sold, you know, with the vehicle when it was manufactured. RVs are manufactured by in in a slightly different way as well than vehicles. So it, the tires could have been added at a certain point in the manufacturer where they aren't connected with that vehicle's van. There's, there's really, I don't believe there's a system that tracks tires based on the um, RV van. Plus as replacement tires, obviously they wouldn't be connected to the vehicle by a van as well. So it's, it's, it's just very difficult to track tires. Does the manufacturer at least know where their tires are? Like, cause it's an expensive purchase. I mean, I imagine they, know where they were sold possibly, but I, I, you know, and they could, possibly track down owners that way um i'm sure that's a difficult process but you know here we're talking about 20 years 15 to 20 years after the purchase so it becomes okay. really difficult okay uh speaking of something that's going to become difficult for certain people uh looks like there's a couple places that will no longer insure certain models of kia and hyundai's We've talked about this problem before where uh, our TikTok fans have been stealing Kia and Hyundais because you can go on the thing called the internet. I wouldn't go there. It's a waste of time. And learn how to steal a Kia and a Hyundai just using a USB cable. Uh, this upsets people like Fred because back in his day to hotwire a car it required, you know, splicing lines, whereas this is just, you know, anyone can do this. So it looks like Progressive and State Farm um, are refusing to write policies in certain cities for older Hyundai and Kia models that have been deemed too easy to steal. Uh, has this ever happened before where an, an insurance company is just like, yeah, no, we're not insuring your cars anymore because the cars are worthless at that point. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not aware of this happening before. I mean, I, I would leave that possibility open. I certainly don't know everything, but the it's, it's certainly unusual. Um, it's interesting here, you know, we, we worked on um, Hyundai Kia fires that were happening. I believe at last count, it was well over 4,000 fires, around 5,000 fires across a small swath of model years. And we always wondered why insurance companies didn't refuse coverage on those vehicles, because it was pretty clear that there was a very widespread defect that was destroying the cars. Right. Um, so in this case, it's it's even newer vehicles. I think these are 2015, 2016 to 2019 Kias and Hyundais. And these are the ones we talked about on a podcast where we were discussing the NHTSA theft prevention standards and immobilizers. And there's an option for manufacturers. You can either do your meet the NHTSA parts marking requirements, which requires you to um, mark parts with I think it's some type of serial number that identifies them. So it prevents the stolen parts from being sold. That's one way to supposedly prevent thefts. Um, the other option is the immobilizer, which um, these Kias and Hyundais did not have. They chose the parts marking. And so that's what enabled this TikTok hack to uh, to work. And so now without a, you know, some type of, 
really probably very expensive retrofit to this to the vehicle's ignition systems these cars are going to be susceptible to theft and i believe that the insurance companies involved you know i think it's progressive and state farm they're limiting uh they're not it's not a blanket ban on insurance they say it's temporary we're not sure you know what that exactly that means but it's it's only applying to vehicles in certain locations certain cities or states i suppose where they're seeing a problematic uh theft rates um so that that's you know it's understandable from the insurer's perspective um but it's also you know unusual that that it, this isn't something you see every day. I mean, it, it, it signifies that there's a really, really um, significant problem going on. It's something we've, I think we've identified in the past that the rise in, in vehicle thefts and some of the public safety issues that's created, it appears it's also creating an, an insurance headache. Crazy. Maybe TikTok, maybe TikTok was created by Toyota to force people out of <laughs> buying Kias. What do you think? I think you're on to something there. I think... I don't know what it is, but I think you're onto it. You should probably have less of it in your diet. I tried. <laughs> uh, in my favorite topic, my favorite recent topic, uh, the teenage angst of Cruz and Waymo. Uh, San Francisco, we've talked about how uh, Waymo vehicles and cruise, I think it's mainly cruise vehicles in San Francisco that they're just kind of like come to an intersection and they're like, I give up. I don't want to live anymore. Uh, and I've asked numerous times, how does San Francisco allow this to keep happening? Well, apparently, San Francisco's been listening to our show and they realized, wait, we look like fools and they're not happy with Cruise and Waymo anymore, uh, particularly that they're blocking their famous trolleys and trying to run over fire hoses, <laughs> amongst many other issues. So is San Francisco, you know, coming to their senses? Well, first, I'd like to say to San Francisco, thank you for listening. And also, love the bread. Please send some by. Agreed. You know, I would say that, of, of you know, San Francisco has been at the heart of this. They've had the uh, autonomous vehicles being tested on their streets, I think, in greater numbers and longer than any other area. And they were the first state, uh, I mean, the first city uh, a few months ago to really come out against some of the issues that they were seeing on their streets. Um, so they, 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 they may have even beaten us to that one, Anthony, I'm not sure, but the issue, you know, here is, is that San Francisco isn't, doesn't really have the choice here because they have to go and protest to California's state autonomous vehicle regulator if they want something to take place on their streets, which is problematic. And there's, it's, it points to some, you know, what could be a pretty serious tensions in other states. Um, maybe, maybe not so much in California, but I, you know, I think we're seeing that here where, where San Francisco is, is not able to regulate the, um, where the AVs are operating on their streets. There's a process where, the AV companies go to the state and try to expand their their area, and there's you know it's just it's it's kind of taken all of the decision making out of the, the hands of the local authorities, who are frankly the closest to these problems and issues that we're seeing with um, traffic delays, emergency vehicle problems, fire hoses, and such. So in other cities, we see that in Washington State, where Washington State they 
uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it looks like they passed at the state level saying, hey, we'll let each municipality set up their own AV rules. And then Seattle came in and said, yeah, our AV rule is no, we don't want it. No. So <laughs> no, they, they, they passed at what, they, what we call enabling legislation, I suppose, where you it allows the municipalities to to determine their own priorities when it comes to the technology. And so what hap- what's happening in Washington state is uh, Seattle in November of last year, did some requirements to what the state's requiring. They basically said, you know, you have to do things like um, submit emergency responder action plans. You know, we need a little, we need better data. We need, we actually need some evidence that, you know, these can operate safely on our streets. We need data on, uh, traffic problems and other things. Um, and the AV lobby went directly to, it appears went directly to the, um, folks in Washington state capital and said, oh, look at these guys in Seattle. We need to rein them in. So they have now uh, introduced a bill. They introduced a bill last week in the Washington Senate that would preempt cities uh, in Washington state from being able to regulate AVs on their street. So um, it's, uh, we're not really in favor of that. I mean, I think it raises some really big questions about you know, who, who's the better, who's more capable of regulating? Is it the Seattle DOT or the state DOT? In some, in some states, we'll see like New York City. Can you imagine New York City being, having its AV regulated by Albany, you know, or could you imagine the folks in Richmond regulating AVs in Northern Virginia? Um, there are going to be some pretty serious political issues that arise uh, because of those tensions. As a New Yorker, sadly, I can, since Albany controls the New York City subway system. It's insane. But that's a different story. Okay, so so this is just starting to progress in Washington. This bill was just introduced. It hasn't been passed. And I imagine the local folks of Seattle will be like, wait a second. Uh, so this well, I mean, it's, it's, just, it's a little disappointing to see, you know, a city who's trying to do the right thing, get the data, trying to make its decisions based on good data and based on the experience of other cities. Um, when they introduce, you know, just a couple of additional requirements to ensure they have the information to ensure their emergency responders are protected, um, that they're immediately rebuffed by by the folks in the state capital. That's just I don't think that's a very good way to go about uh, regulation of, of this thing. Plus, it's, you know, you, you've you're arguably taking the people who are closest to the situation who are dealing with the um some of the frustrations involved some of the you know potential safety issues involved you're taking them out of the equation and making them go through another layer of bureaucracy to get um positive things done so um we think it's an inefficient way to go about it as well Hmm. well based on what we know so far about the legislation it's clear that the legislation is not intended to improve safety it's very clear that the legislation is, is intended to uh, vitiate those actions by Seattle, which Seattle believes are in its interest to promote public safety. Of, oh, well, a lot of uh, a lot of political activity to. Sorry. No, you're here. You just froze for a split second. We're all good. Oh, all right, good. 
I mean, this is a, a you know, a, perhaps a tragic consequence of long-term political activity by the chambers of commerce and their allies to make sure that they can manipulate local regulations by preemption at the state level. We've, we've seen it over and over again in a lot of different issues, uh, some having to do with gay rights, some having to do with automotive rights. So this is one manifestation of the larger political uh, movement that hopefully will soon be identified and countered. I think this is a good segue into um, the Tower of Fred. You've now entered the Tao of Fred. Because the promise with AVs has been like, hey, we're going to make things safer because we take the human out of the equation. It'll all be just the magic of computers. And we all know computers are great because, you know, according to Equifax, I was born in the 1980s. I wasn't. And I've been married since the 1990s. I haven't been. So computers are infallible, as we know. So, Fred, I'm going to try and do the introduction here. And you're going to correct me where I'm wrong. I've had my coffee, but this is a complex one. So you're going to cover an, an AV reliability standard, correct? Well, maybe, maybe kind of, sort of. Sort of. Okay. So uh, I, just, now I also want to point out that the fact that AVs are being developed by engineers does not mean that they're not being developed by people. There, there are... There's an overlap in those Venn diagrams between humans and technology, but just, just, just to clear the record. Uh, but getting back to stuff that matters. So there was a report uh, put out by NHTSA, our friends, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, in 2015, titled Critical Reasons for Crashes Investigated in the National Motor Vehicle Crash Causation Survey. Sure to be a bestseller at some point, but... What's important about this is that it has a, a statistic in here that says 96% of crashes involve humans as a critical factor. Well, the industry took this and ran with it and said, well, that means that 96% of, uh, excuse me, 94% of uh, accidents, collisions, deaths are caused by human beings. Well, that's not at all what the report says. It says that humans are a factor in those. But still, it present, it provides some interesting data. Because what it says is that um, if you dive into it a little bit, that, and here I'm flipping through my notes, forgive me for that, that um, 2% of the fatal crashes are caused by events that are associated with the vehicle itself. This is actually a remarkable achievement for automotive design to think that only one out of every two billion passenger miles driven are associated with a a fundamental defect in the device that's carrying the people. But still, what it does is it sets an upper limit for how reliable the software and the other AV unique features in the vehicle have to be in order to avoid contributing to its contribution as a critical factor in highway safety deaths. In other words, in order to do no harm, you need to be at least as reliable as the cars that are out there on the street now that are involved in accidents. So if you, if you parse that data a little bit, what you can find is that, um, of the 6% that are not attributed to the to the humans, 2% are attributed to the vehicles. Now, this gets into something called 
reliability resource allocation, which means that all of the reliability of the individual parts contribute to the reliability of the whole. And so if we say the 2% are associated with the vehicle itself, then we've got to say some portion of that is associated with the data processing part, and some other portion is associated with all of the mechanical parts that we're used to, tires, axles, parts that break, all that sort of stuff. So I arbitrarily split it in half and said 1% of that reliability budget has got to be absorbed by the software and data processing system. So if you crunch the numbers a little bit, what that means is that um, for the AV features to have critical factors that are no, that uh, are not contributing to a defect in highway safety compared with the current experience as documented by NHTSA, the um, AV unique features can be no more occur no more often than once every about five billion miles. This is this is the tough standard. Um, yeah. But now you know, in order to turn that into terms that are compatible with software engineering, you've got to come up with a metric that says failures per hour, failures per day, failures per millennium, something like that, because that's what software engineers are used to dealing with. So I assume that the average speed of a vehicle is 35 miles per hour. You could use any any other number here that's reasonable, but I think that's a reasonable number. It's halfway between parking and getting a speeding ticket. Um, the mean time between life-critical failures of the entire set of AV or ADAS, um, Automated Driver Assistance System, unique components, including data processing, software, and hardware, which is a standard parameter characterizing software-driven life or mission-critical failures of all types, can be no higher than about one failure per 143 million hours of operation. Um, that's a tough standard. Have, are you with me so far? I think so. So, uh, so right now, no one's obviously anywhere near this standard. Well, we don't know. Nobody has ever, nobody's ever developed an objective standard for how reliable these systems have got to be. Now, if you look at current experience, we know that the AVs are much worse. And, you know, the, the principal, um, demonstrator of this are all the Tesla accidents. I, you know, you can make all kinds of arguments to say that, well, you know, it's safer. It's not. It's fair, certified. It's not. But the fact is, it is a very high bar for software reliability to merely sustain the current unacceptable slaughter rate of 42,000 people per year. So if you want to make the roads safer, you've got to go even farther with the software reliability and the data processing reliability than once per 143 million hours of operation. Now, no, I that, not sorry before you go into so that, that is that number is that per driver or is that collectively that that 143 million? Oh, great question. That is per software installation. So if you okay. so, so right each vehicle has got a unique software associated with it. No two software implementations would be the same for two different vehicles because the vehicles are different. They've got different characteristics. Um, I, I may be wrong on that, but it's it's not an important point. 
So that's that's per software information. That's per software installation, software configuration. Now it's important to note that if you change the software configuration, like doing an over-the-air update, you got to restart the clock. So unless you're willing to to put it out there and get the data, uh, you're simply never going to know. Now, if you make two assumptions. And for the nerds out there, I'm looking at you, my sister. Um, if you make a stochastic and ergodic assumption about the occurrence of these faults, then you can say, okay, we're going to spread this out over the entire fleet of vehicles operating. So let's say there's 300 million, or I don't know what. Um, I'll rewind that a little bit. So if you look at the death rate of one death, for approximately 100 million miles, um, you're looking at something like, oh, I think I got that calculated here. And that one death per 100 million miles, is that today's accident rate on the highway? That, that is today's accident rate, yeah. So um, something like 2% of that could be attributed to the, the vehicle and you'd be in the right ballpark or 1% of that. So you would be looking at one failure per billion miles associated with the cars. Now, you can do that if you make those stochastic and ergodic assumptions by saying, well, we'll look at the whole fleet. So if the whole fleet in the United States is automatic vehicles, and they've all got the same software running in them, then you can say, okay, well, I've got a pretty big base now. I can go ahead and calculate what the actual reliability rate is based upon the number of crashes that I'm seeing that are actually attributable to the software, um, the software and AV specific defects. So it's possible to do that. It's possible. It'll never happen, but it's possible to do that. But what it does do is presents an objective standard for what the software engineers need to expect when they test the software. Now, as you know, Anthony, you've been in the software business. There are several ways of accelerating the life testing of software. You can do stress testing. You can inject faults. You can run it way faster. You can put it in simulations. A lot of things you can do. So the fact that you're looking at less than one failure per 143 million hours of operation sounds like it's an impossible thing to do, but it's not. Software engineers can do that. And these kinds of calculations are routinely done in mission-critical software implementations in the military and in the commercial environment. For example, uh, you know, operating an offshore oil rig or operating a, a missile system. These are just simply the, the kinds of calculations that the industry is quite used to. So it could, you know, it could be done. Even if, you, but so, but let me back off. The important point here is that, yes, you can set an objective standard for how reliable the AV-specific operating system in the vehicle has to be in order to not contribute, much less make better, but in order to not contribute to increasing highway hazards. Does that make sense? That that absolutely makes sense. Is there anything related standard wise with uh, um, you know the airline industry? Because I imagine they clearly have a bunch of mission critical software. Do they have a, a failure rate per hours flown or miles flown? Each component 
would have a target failure rate. Because, okay, so what happens in an overall system analysis is you say, well, I'm going to accept a failure rate of X, mm-hmm. one per million operations, one per billion operations, some number. And then what you do is the manager of risk is you say, I'm going to apportion that reliability down to the different systems. So part of it's going to go to the structure that's holding it in place. Part of it's going to go to, and I'll make up the numbers, the uh, the flight controller. And within the flight controller, now they've got their own budget of, you know, some Y failures per hour. And they'll say, okay, well, I'm going to allocate that down to the subcomponents. The transformer has to be this and such reliability in order to contribute to the overall. So you can you can set up this tree and you see my fingers fluttering down on the screen. But you can set up this whole tree in which you distribute your risk budget and your reliability budget out to the lowest level components where you can go ahead and do the test. So the individual tests on the components can be run very rapidly in many cases. Analytically, you have to build that up to the top level. And then if you couple that with software validation with some very tough cases, you can make a very strong case that you've, you've got the reliability that you need, you've demonstrated it empirically, and you're good to go. That's typically what happens in a, uh, in a complex engineered system of any kind that has mission-critical or life-critical software embedded in it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think, you know, Waymo, Cruise, Aurora, Fred's just put all of you on notice. Here's the basic standard you have to meet. And, you know, it's hard for me to believe that nobody else has looked at this data and come to the same conclusion. It's, the, that It jumps right out at you once you take a look at it and get away from the myth that it proves 96, 94% of the um, crashes are going to mysteriously go away. This is yeah. this is a very important number. Um, it's well established in the industry, and I think you know that's a great starting place. I, I think so, other people have probably come across this number, but they're not. They don't want to tout it. You know, if okay, I so, worked for Waymo or whatnot, and I saw this, I'd be like, hey, "Oh, let's." Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, it, it's going to be a pain in the neck for them. They have to spend money doing that, and the, the last thing they want to do now is delay their return on capital because, frankly, this stretch kind of thin. But, hey, in the interest of public safety, somebody should do that. Now, interestingly, one of the complaints that that we've often heard is that um, no third party is qualified to look over the operations of a sophisticated vehicle manufacturer because, oh, it's just too hard. And so, you know, we can't have the kind of third-party review that the Center for Auto Safety has long advocated for these AVs because it's just too hard and it's a Wednesday and come on, guys, give us a break. So it was interesting that uh, Jalopnik reported that Volvo Group has agreed to a substantial fine um, for recall delays and has agreed to uh volvo group will be overseen in part by an independent third-party auditor looking into the group's recalls dating back to july 2013 wow michael isn't that just what we've been advocating 
Well, you know, we like third-party uh, independent auditors. NHTSA, in the in the last few years, has typically, every time they've done a large civil penalty like that one, which is the Volvo Truck and Bus Group, which is somewhat separate from the, the, the vehicle manufacturer, um, what they were doing was just a wide array of um, bad reporting of recalls, defects, um, early warning reports, and some other things, it looks like. And what the agency does is they then appoint an independent monitor. You'll see in Takata, there was an independent monitor appointed over Chrysler when they had some recall issues a few years back. Um, so, you know, having an independent outside observer uh for some of these companies is very important. Typically it happens after they've, they've been naughty and been caught um, and been fined. Um, but in, you know, it, we think that manufacturers should be at least checked somehow before they deploy a vehicle they claim to be safer than a human driver onto the roads. Um, and I, I, you know, we talked a little bit about that process and how the insurance companies might play a role when we spoke with Edge Case Research a few few weeks back um, about the industry using UL forty six hundred, which we discussed with Deb Prince last week, to at least be able to give policymakers and the public confidence that the vehicles are going to perform um, to the rate that has been set by humans, which is a one death every one point something, one point one something million, uh, hundred million miles traveled, which is a, a very high bar when you think about it. And it, it almost lends, you know, it, it makes me think sometimes that humans are a lot better drivers than we give them credit for sometimes. And, and these machines may have a, a lot further to go than we think or that we, than we've thought for the past decade for sure. Now, before we send the DAO back to its temple in the woods for another week, I have a quiz for Michael and Anthony. Oh, no. Ah, uh, yes. So continued use of wishful thinking instead of hard data to design in needed and document the safety-critical reliability in any engineered product, including AVs, is, if not negligent, at best. And the question is, what fill in the blank? Tesla's motto. Michael? It's not negligent. At best, um, irresponsible. Faith-based engineering. Wow. You guys knew like that. Like I said, Tesla's motto. They're marketing anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's it. <laughs> that, was a, that was a good one. I like to point out, though, because this gets lost when you hear these very large numbers. One one fatality per 1.1 over 100 million miles. That sounds like, oh, the roads are very safe. But as we've pointed out many times, and, and Fred pointed out just a few minutes ago, that's 42,000 deaths per year on U.S. roads. That's a pretty big number. I mean, that that's the, the number that we're regularly fighting to reduce. Uh, and we've pointed out a number of ways in this podcast to bring that number down. Yeah, and and let me reemphasize that that number, uh, that metric I came up with for software reliability, doesn't make the roads any safer. It only and it would only enact a standard that says do no harm, right. um, which which I think is the minimum that any manufacturer should be able to provide us customers. Okay, but so speaking of fancy software in cars, Consumer Reports came out and they did their rankings of ADAS systems. 
automated driving assistance systems. God, I should know this. So think of your um, adaptive cruise control and lane keeping software in your car. If you have that where you can set it and your car will more or less maintain the center lane and it will stay a certain distance behind the car in front of you. Well, consumer and what basically what Tesla calls full self-driving. So Consumer Reports did a test of everybody's system. Well, not uh, almost everybody's systems. And they came out and they they liked Ford's Blue Cruise the best. Uh, they describe it. Uh, this is a, my favorite line from their article is, but while Blue Cruise's capabilities are impressive and can make driving more relaxing, cars that can truly and safely drive themselves remain a long way off. These are just ways to make your life on a long road trip a little easier but you've got to be the one driving, okay? Uh, and and it's neat about Blue Cruise's system where they have an internal-facing camera that is eye-tracking to make sure you're actually paying attention to the road. It only works on uh, mapped, divided highways. So they've got, and I think it, maybe they've expanded beyond that, but they've gone out there and mapped all these roads. They know basically what should be going on. And in the Blue Cruise case, something I don't understand is if you stop paying attention, it will warn the driver a number of times and then it will eventually slow the vehicle down to five miles per hour and turn the hazards on but it doesn't actually stop it or pull it off the road like what i that's the that's one of the things i don't happen i don't understand i mean because if the driver has some sort of a heart attack or something like that i think it's great they're taking this preemptive movement but i, I get a little lost there you might think there should be a requirement that, uh, you know, keeps people safe in case the system fails. But of course, that's kind of visionary, but mm. it still seems like a good idea. Well, they're apparently doing better than others who aren't doing that well. And Tesla was pretty far down this list in terms of their, uh, you know, what they call full self-driving. Uh, Consumer Reports didn't seem to be impressed with them at all. Um, but, well, I think it's it's really good that Consumer Reports is doing this because it's it's a real it's a confusing area for owners and potential car buyers, you know, trying to figure out what the capabilities of all these different systems are. So it's really good that Consumer Reports is is putting out ratings on on these systems um, to help consumers figure out, you know, what this technology is because it's not. It's you know these these cars aren't as simple as the ones we bought twenty years ago. So it's that's important. Um, the the Blue Cruise issue, you know, that is interesting that they don't have some type of requirement the vehicle stop you know with its hazards on safe in a safe place. I, I'm not really sure what happens if the vehicle is continuing to operate at five miles per hour and reaches a uh, the end of the road or or some other obstruction. So that's 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 odd. But you know what? They came out on top in the in the CR rating. So they they've got the um they've got a uh you know fairly impressive system it looks like. You know, and it's better than Tesla's system which apparently um in case of a distracted driver looks for flashing emergency lights to approach <laughs> and it accelerates as fast as it can. Uh so time for a recall roundup. I think so. Strap in. Time for the Recall Roundup. So this week we've got a few of them because we haven't done Recall Roundup in a, in a little while. Volvo um, potentially uh, recalling 27,457 vehicles. 
Uh, this is a, oh boy, oh boy, this is a long one. It goes everywhere. So a reduction in brake support functions can in- increase the risk of crash. Lack of robustness in software compatibility with a specific BCM2 hardware version. Uh, the dev- deviation may not occur during an ongoing brake event. If the deviation occurs, the system will always enter hydraulic. I don't understand. Uh, let's just go to the, the English explanation. It got a little too much there. Over 27,000 vehicles. Sounds like the software issue with their brakes. Michael? Yeah, there, there, there's a brake control module that apparently has uh, some problem with some hardware that's being installed on it. Fred's going to translate that for us, I believe. So let me let me jump in here a little bit. Um, I don't understand this at all because it uh, it revolves around this deviation may not occur during an ongoing brake event. Uh, I just don't understand that. It doesn't mean that it can possibly occur or it's impossible to occur or somebody's passed a law saying it shouldn't occur or what the hell does that statement mean anyway? Oh, good. Because I thought it was just me because I was like, what? I don't I, I just don't get that at all. Putting that aside, they talk about a specific um, problem, which is software incompatibility. And that can have many sources. You can have an uh, API compatibility, uh, uh, something program interface. What is that? I can't remember what that stands for. Interface. Application programs interface. So the software, for example, the software needs to know that the pressure, the software needs to know the pressure and is being sent the stock quote. Okay, so that's a that's an an ident that's an uh, identifies a potential incompatibility. So the format, the software needs a formal invitation, and is instead being sent a yellow sticky note. Now, that doesn't that sounds a little glib, but usually um, a message is sent across the network that includes a digital word length, a message structure, the protocol, memory requirements, a re- um, a lot of things, um, if any of those aren't exactly right, you're going to have an incompatibility. You can also have a register incompatibility. For example, if you send a 16-bit message, but the computer is, is expecting a 64-bit message, this, this happens. That's brought down rockets in the past. A timing issue. Let's say that as data is needed within X milliseconds, but it's sent after Y, which is greater than X milliseconds. So... That would be like if you, that would be like if you get receive a invitation to a birthday party a week after the party happened. <laughs> doesn't doesn't do you a lot of good. Um, I thought that counts. Parity issue. That's kind of hard to explain, but it's like getting off on the wrong foot. And then there, of course, is the stupido effect, which uh-huh. is sometimes the software author is simply incompetent. So. All of those things can happen. Um, in this case, there was probably a sensor that was looking at the voltage of a particular wire, and it seems that it wasn't getting the correct reading from that wire, which should have read zero volts because it was looking for a ground signal. It looks like it wasn't getting that zero-volt signal. I could be wrong in this because I haven't looked at the details, but that's that's my guess based upon what we see. Is that enough for you, Michael, or you need more? 
Yeah, that's, you know, I think basically what Volvo owners need to know here, too, is that, you know, this, it, it looks like you maintain braking ability, but you lose your traction control, your electronic stability control, your analog brake systems, and all of the brake technology, basically, that's been developed and installed on cars for the past 30 years. So this is something you want to get fixed as soon as possible. And in fact, it looks like it may be fixed through an over-the-air update. So you can just sit and sit on your couch and, and let your recall perform itself. Ah, so for listeners, this is uh, 2023 uh, Volvo S60s, V60s, V60cc, V90cc, XC60, XC90s, XC40s, C40. Who comes up with these names? This is the worst marketing department ever. Anyway, next recall. Um, hey, my favorite subject, motorcycle related. Let's see. Komodo Holdings is recalling over 16,000 helmets because their helmets failed to comply during DOT testing. Penetration test failure. Uh, so basically, they sold a bunch of motorcycle helmets that are just for fashion, I guess. How, how does this happen? And they they seem to be blaming the test lab um, instead of themselves. Right. They they um, you know the the I, I rarely see part five seven threes. That's the recall notice come in where um, manufacturers use phrases like "we're surprised" and "extremely surprised" um, by the by the um non-compliance but that's what they're claiming they're super surprised and they're saying you know we sent these to test labs in the united states and china and um they passed with flying colors so why are they failing the nitsa test um but you know um, here it just looks like they basically didn't do enough testing or didn't do proper testing to ensure they passed the penetration test and this is one more helmet that Anthony, you won't have to worry about your son wearing. <laughs> Good. Yeah. And so for listeners, uh, the brand names of these are Built Helmets or Built Vertex, B-I-L-T. Uh, if you have these, please replace them because they're not doing you any good. Um, and let's see. Last one we have is Isuzu. Uh, they need some bigger trucks. Their bigger trucks needs testing. So this is, they've got a non-compliance compliance determination. Ooh, this is another 573. Is this 573? Is this the, uh, the magic recalls? The 573s are, are the magic uh, number for what the recall is. You know, basically, NHTSA, NHTSA has a regulation, a Part 573 regulation that tells you what you have to put in your recall notice. Mm. So this looks like a recalibration is required for both the ADAS camera and ABS module. Oh, it's always these cameras. Well, what they did was they built um, these diesel vehicles, and what you know, these are commercial trucks, but they extended the length of the vehicles. Um, you could have um, you could have the frames extended when you when you ordered the vehicles from i think it was from about 176 inches to an option of either 200 or 212 inches and they did that but when they did so they never recalibrated their advanced driver assistance systems to take account for the increase in distance and the different placement of sensors and, and other things 
um, which, you know, is kind of, you know, as far as recalls go, that seems like a pretty simple thing to have discovered, and it took them six months. So they were a little slow on this one. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Boeing, Boeing 737 MAX, because that sounds like the same sort of problem. Hey, let's replace critical parts, not test mm -hmm. it. Uh, well, the difference is that you could detect the source of the problem with the uh, truck by taking out a tape measure. Um, it's a little bit more <laughs> difficult with a 737. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, and our final item of the week, it's not a recall, but 50 years ago is when NHTSA had the, uh, put in place the odometer disclosure requirement. And now I assume, because I haven't read this, it's that means everyone has to share their odometer reading. Is that right? Or is that I can no yeah, longer read my odometer? That was basically the start of um, regulations that prevented people from claiming their car didn't have the uh, as much mileage as it did so that you'd buy it. So um, that has played a very, a very strong role in preventing potential car used car buyers from getting um, scammed. And we've still, you know, still to this day, we've seen um people who get in trouble for rolling back speedometers and doing other things. And what this, what, what that provision did was it basically provided a record keeping function so that odometers could be tracked um, so that people couldn't falsify their odometer reading and pretend their car had a hundred thousand less miles on it than it does. Cause now it's all software based. It seems like, and I tried to crack open my windshield, the little screen and roll back, but it's just a digital display. That was a bad choice. That, Many. You're talking about, talking about killing your car's value while trying to raise it. <laughs> well, I mean, I just get a little Sharpie pen and just, you know, cross out the two or something. Anyway, folks, thank you for listening. I, I don't know if you've noticed, but online we've been making some changes to the podcast. Uh, where there's You can now add comments. You can join a little discussion. No one has so far. But you can go ahead and do that and start saying, hey, this is what I love about this. This is what I hate about this. You guys are the best. You guys are the worst. We have transcripts up. Now, granted, these are machine-generated transcripts, so do not use these for attribution because they get words wrong, like they can't spell Waymo correctly. Now, sure, we could, you know spend a bunch of money and and time going through this and and making them perfect and correct but then the roads and cars won't be safer that's where we'd rather spend time so these are pretty good updates uh we're back on the instagram i know you love uh and uh yeah hey thanks for listening but please go out rate rate this go to itunes or however you get this and give it five stars and and say how wonderful you find this podcast thank you for listening Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Bye-bye. For more information, visit www.autosafety.org. Okay, so now I'm going to do a little final rant. You may want to splice in. I'm not sure. Right. but um, <clears throat> People talk about AVs and how wonderful they are, and specifically they say, well, they never sleep and they never drink, so, you know, they're, they're going to be great. They're going to be a big improvement. I want people to know that the reason you don't kill people when you drive a car is not because you have certain technical capabilities. The reason you don't kill people is because you have a conscience and the car does not. You have judgment and the car does not. Um, the car cannot appreciate life-changing consequences of their bad decisions. You as a driver can.
The cars do not project the consequences of their limitations onto unforeseen circumstances. You do. You're very good at doing that. Um, they don't fix themselves. They can't project the consequences of unrelated events onto the driving task. Like, for example, if a human has a prescription for um, drugs with some impairment and a recommendation that you don't drive or operate heavy machinery, you're likely to pay attention to that, even though the information came from nowhere within the driving universe, exactly. And fundamentally, they don't care, and you do. That's the big difference. Cars don't care. <laughs> but we do. End of rant. 